0: Numbers chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, when the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you mount the lamps, the seven lamps, will give light in the front of the lampstand. And Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers it was hammered work, according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. The lampstand. And that's why that's background there, to give you kind of an idea, at least of, of the shape of it, how it looked you know sometimes when you read things in scripture in fact Donna we we talked about this a few months ago you you try and see it but if you're not a super visual person it's kind of like what what exactly did that look like and that's a good representation especially the fact that you have six branches branching off the main shaft so you have seven lamps but six branches coming off of it okay so it's a good picture of it back there I have a ring that I bought when I was in Israel I uh, Showed sure, Frank, and he rolled his eyes. But it's not because I'm a Jewish wannabe, and I keep saying this. It's not. That's not the deal here. But I, I have this ring. I'm wearing it right now. It's got on the top of it, it's got a, a green stone that's called an elot stone, and it's from the region or the city of elot, and it's a, a stone that's indigenous to Israel, so I thought that was cool when I saw it. And what I was really looking for was if they had a ring like this with the stone, I was looking for... A really cool symbol to be on top of it. This one has the Star of David in gold sitting right on top of the Elat stone. It's actually called the Magen David, which literally means the Shield of David. It's what's on the Jewish Jewish flag, the Israeli flag, you've seen it, the white flag with the, the big blue Jewish star sitting in the middle of it. It's kind of cool, when we were in Jerusalem, we, we looked up at one point, I don't know if I told you this, I've told so much about this, I don't know what I've told, but I haven't, but we looked up the street, and there was, right in the middle of the Muslim quarter of the old city, there was a huge Jewish flag, Israeli flag, flying on this house, and we asked our tour guide about that, because it was really out of place in this particular area, and he said, oh, that house belongs to Ariel Sharon, and he bought it, in the Muslim quarter because he could. (laughs) Because he was Ariel Sharon and has the flag. He doesn't even hardly live there. He had another residence that he lived in but he bought that house and flew the flag from it. And you can see it right up the street which was was pretty cool. But something I found out when we were there the star of David that proudly flies on that flag of Israel is not historically attached to David at all. It didn't come from David. In fact, um, historians looking back aren't even sure exactly where the six pointed star got connected to Israel, or, or how it got connected. They know um, that it's more infamous than it is glorious, that the history of the Jewish star is more negative than positive. The Catholic Council of Basel in 1431 to 33 required that all Jews be confined to separate quarters and required to wear a gold star, a distinguishable badge. Where do you think Hitler got the idea? The gold star that had the name Jude written in its center, which was to point out the Jewish people, to set them apart, to mark them as less than. To mark them for, literally in Hitler's mind, annihilation. And it's long been the suffering uh, symbol, a symbol of shame for the Jewish people. Psalm 102, and we read this on Sunday night, 102 verse 8, it says, My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. And again, that name, Jude, would sit right there in the middle of the golden star during World War II, during all the incarceration and literally incineration of the Jewish people. And so you would wonder, with that kind of a history, why put the star up on the flag? Wouldn't you pick something else, something that's not such a reminder of such turmoil and shame and horror for the Jewish people? Laugh we'll a Jew today, and the response would be that it's a sign of an accepted heritage. Literally looked at as a badge of honor. And we will wear that star. You may think you forced it on us, but we will wear it and wear it proudly. Reminds me of a, of a great scene in the movie The Hiding Place where Papa Tin Boom was walking down the street and joined a long line of Jewish people. He was Christian, but he joined a line of Jewish people waiting to get their golden star. And one of his Jewish friends who was in that line said, Go home, Tin Boom. What are you doing here? This isn't for you. This is for Jews only. We're the ones that have to wear the star, not you. And he said, If my Jewish brothers wear the star, then I wear the star with them. And he wore that star, though he wasn't even Jewish if the chosen people of God wear a golden star, I will wear mine as well. So that six-pointed star of David, the, the Magan David, is a powerful symbol for the Jewish people. A, a reminder of what, where they've been, what they've gone through, but also a symbol of, uh, of pride and honor today as it flies on their flag. But it really wasn't the symbol I was looking for when I was looking at rings in Israel. That's the symbol I ended up with because the one I was looking for, they didn't have on a ring anywhere. For the true symbol of Israel, the primary symbol, if you ask the Jew today in Israel, what's the main symbol of the Jewish people? They would tell you it's not the Star of David at all. It's the menorah. The menorah. That 7 candle stand, that lampstand that we've studied about, that we've read about, that you see displayed before you on the screen behind me. The menorah. What's ironic to me about the menorah, and it's sad as well, that this lampstand with its six arms branching out of that primary shaft, altogether holding seven oil-burning lamps, sheds no light for the Jewish people today. So the whole point, and if you went through the Exodus study, or you may know this anyway, the point of the lampstand was to shed light in the holy place. That from the light of the lampstand, the golden table of showbread, and the altar of incense, seeing the holy place, it could be glowing. It was, it was a, supposedly a beautiful sight. That was the purpose of the lampstand, to shed light. And yet it sheds no light for Israel today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, over the heart of Israel but Paul says whenever a person turns to the Lord the veil is taken away now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty now Paul's making a connection and you need to not miss this that the veil is taken away when someone turns to the Lord how? by the Spirit what is it that the lampstand in the holy place represents to us? it represents the Spirit the Spirit we've talked about that before Those seven lamps representing seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, you can read those in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. It's a picture, a portrait of the Holy Spirit. He alone removes the veil in our lives. He alone sheds truth in our lives. The Holy Spirit alone gives us insight and understanding and direction for our lives. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 5 says, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Psalm 56, verse 13 says, You have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light, the light of the living. Now I want you to think about this, and just looking at your Bibles, you've got it open to Numbers chapter 8. Consider where we're at right now And this keeps happening Especially in the book of Numbers How things are placed It's critical It's very important You remember that Numbers chapter 7 We talked about on Sunday It's the second longest chapter in the Bible And what does it deal with? Giving Right on David It deals with giving Giving the second longest chapter dealing with giving We had a long conversation about that on Sunday, and uh, I have no idea what the giving was like on Sunday, but that was beside the point, as we talked about. That's what that whole chapter is about, giving. Now you get into chapter 8, beginning with verse 5 and on through the rest of the chapter, and it's about the cleansing of the Levites. So chapter 7 is giving, chapter 8 is cleansing, chapter 7 is the presentation of the gifts. Chapter 8 is the dedication of the Levites, presentation, dedication, but here we find something that seems almost out of place, incongruous, we have four little verses stuck right into the middle about the lampstand, now let me just remind you that the Bible was not written with chapter and verse, it was written in a better, in more of a flow than that. We have chapter and verse added in that helps us in our Bible study, it helps us finding our way around. But originally, the scroll of the Book of Numbers would have just had the writing straight through. So you've got all this talk, eighty-nine verses about giving, and then beginning again in verse five through verse twenty-six of chapter eight, you have all this about the dedication of the Levites and stuck right in here this section that seems like it doesn't belong. In fact, you would think it would go back in Exodus. They go back somewhere in the Exodus where the lampstand is talked about, described, and you can read these four verses there. That's where it would make sense. Why here? Why here? Are we making too much out of this? J. Vernon McGee says it belongs back in Exodus where instructions were given for the tabernacle. It makes no sense for it to be right here, seemingly. (laughs) It makes no human sense. But think about it. The author of the word... God is absolutely perfect in all that He does. His decisions for where things land in Scripture, I have come to absolutely believe, are on purpose. He is not a random author. So why is the landstand talked about here between this presentation of the gifts and the dedication of the Levites? Gang, it's because when it comes to my presentation to the Lord... When it comes to my dedication to the Lord, it's only effective if it's done in the light of the presence of the Lord. He embeds this right here in between these two examples of giving, of service, of ministry, of active pursuit of God. And in the middle of it, he says, oh, and by the way, don't forget the lampstand. Well, What is that lampstand? We now know looking back, it's a picture of the Spirit. In your giving, don't forget the Holy Spirit. In your dedication to the Lord, don't move without the Holy Spirit. The presence, the light of the presence of the Lord. So what does it mean? And this really, in all of our studies tonight, I want to think about what does it really mean to live and to walk and to move in the light of the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. It's one of the toughest areas, I think, of faith development for the Christian. Serving is one thing. We can learn to serve and and do it. Giving is one thing. But gang, truly following the Spirit, living in the Spirit, is not about going through the motions. It's about going through the motives. It's about the why. The why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's not about what I'm doing, but, but why. And that's where it gets sticky, isn't it? When we start to go on the inside. Why did you show up tonight? Why am I here? Why did I drop what I dropped into the offering box? Why am I leading a whole Bible study? Why am I cleaning up after church? Why am I speaking tonight? Why am I doing worship? Why am I standing up as I worship? Why am I caring for other people? Why? And if we ask that question enough, I don't know about you, but for me it doesn't take long to figure out I've got some selfish motives in there. I've got some things that are not quite right. I've got some reasoning for doing really good things. But the reasoning isn't right on target. A lot of times we do things as Christians when other Christians are around because it helps us look more Christian to the rest of the group. I'm fitting in. I do it here because I fit in better. If you expect me to act the way I act here at work, well, that's a different thing because no one really knows there. But when I'm here, so here's my motivation to fit to be a part of what's going on not to stand out too much motivation what am I doing what are my true intentions look at Matthew chapter 6 for just a moment Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 Jesus talks about motives really ruffles some feathers in fact the Sermon on the Mount must have sent a bunch of people home really uncomfortable because Jesus digs into motives and internal behavior and the heart in a way that the other rabbis didn't. And he says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, They have their reward in full. But when you get to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. My son Hayden asked me just the other day, why would you want to do that? Why would you give in secret, Dad? What do you mean, Hayden? Well, if I'm going to give a lot of money to something, I want people to know it. Now, Hayden's nine years old. But his nine-year-old mind betrays what is in a lot of people's hearts. I don't want to do something that no one's going to know about. Read on. Jesus says, Verse 5, When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites They love to stand and pray in the synagogues And on the street corners So that they may be seen by men Truly I say to you They have their reward in full that's a, that's a kind of a staggering statement They have their reward in full In other words you're not getting any more Than what you just got If that's how you're applying your spirituality So that you can be seen and praised by men That's all the praise you're going to get That makes me shudder That's not the praise I want I want His praise. I want to be in that place where He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 6, He says, But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to the Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So going back to Numbers chapter 8, how then do we honestly live with integrity? How do we move dealing with, honestly, our inward motives It's actually pretty simple. The answer is, live before the lampstand. Live before the lampstand. In other words, walk in the light of the Spirit of God. Remember Sunday, we talked about the widow's light. That little widow who, who came in to give her two cents worth, basically. And Jesus is watching. But something interesting, we didn't read this verse on Sunday. It's the opening verse for what's going on. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Listen to how the story begins. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. But did you catch that terminology? It doesn't tell us that Jesus was noticing what the people were giving. It tells us he was noticing how the people were giving. There's a total difference there. His interest was in the attitude or the motive behind the gift, how the person was giving. Was the person walking up with their large sum of money and and making sure it was well known what was going in? Or like the little old widow with her two cents, did she just come up and in humility, maybe even almost in shame because she had so little to give, drop in the two cents worth? The interest of Jesus is always in the motive behind the gift. And not necessarily in the gift itself. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving, striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. you might say, okay, but what if my motives are selfish? What if they're not hundred percent pure? again, you live before the lampstand because there is a power in the lampstand. It symbolizes the light of the Spirit of God who is at work in us driving out the darkness. John says if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. In other words, the more I walk in the light, that is openly, willingly, the more the light can shine on the gifts and the works that I do I got an email it's from someone sitting here tonight so I'm not going to say who it is but just talking about sharing his witness sharing his testimony with a group of people should I share all the things that I've gone through and come from and the answer to that question is absolutely it's called walking in the light it's called living openly before the spirit you know what when you're saved by grace you have nothing to hide There is nothing in your life you've done, nothing past tense, no bad decisions, mistakes, failures, absolute and outright sins that you need to worry about anymore. You've been saved by grace. And if something comes up from your past life, your previous existence, and things that you did before Christ, if something comes out and comes into the light, oh no, something embarrassing, something shameful, you can say with all honesty, yeah, that was me. But my Father loves me. And I walk in grace I'm saved by His grace we might pray this prayer as we walk Spirit of the Lord illuminate my dark motives bring them to light so that I may walk in your righteousness if my motives are askew if they're off show me Lord let me see that I can hand it over to you and your Holy Spirit can move through me and ignite me to serve Now as I said, the rest of chapter 8 will go on to the dedication of the Levites for priestly ministry. But that's just a little few verses on the lampstand. We'll come back to the lampstand in a bit. Verse 5. It goes on and says again, The Lord said to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them, and let them use a razor over their whole body, and wash their clothes, and they will be clean. Now we've seen the preparation of the high priest, the Aaron and his sons. We read about that back in the book of Leviticus. Here's how they were ordained and consecrated. We read that, but now it's the Levites are being ordained, consecrated, dedicated to service. And there are three specific things that Moses is told to do. First, sprinkle purifying water on them. Second, let them shave their whole body. And then third, let them wash their clothes and they will be clean. And this is another key to spirit-filled living Look again at verse 7 and listen. The Levites were to be sprinkled by Moses. By Moses. However, the Levites then were also to shave and wash their clothes themselves. One is a passive reception. The Levite was to stand there and to be sprinkled with water by Moses, to be cleaned by Moses. But then they were to go and shave and wash themselves. A passive reception and a practical reaction. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 tells us, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So first, Moses sprinkles the Levites. The initial cleansing of the priests of God symbolized beautifully in the Christian life in baptism. This is one of the things I love about the symbol of baptism. It is a passive thing we do. When a person is baptized, they don't baptize themselves. Oh, I suppose they could. But typically you go into the water and someone baptizes you and you are a passive participant. You're there, but you're doing nothing. You're not washing yourself. You're not saving yourself. And the symbol is clear. Salvation is of the Lord, not of us. I'm not doing anything to receive this. I haven't earned the grace that's being handed to me. And when we act through that symbol of baptism, it's that passive reception. Something's being done to me. Something's being done to me. Now, some have asked, and you can question, Well, what about this whole sprinkling versus immersion thing, especially if you see this picture of them being sprinkled with purifying water. So, does it matter in baptism if you're sprinkled or immersed? And I'll just take you to the two Greek words that are used in the New Testament for baptism. Baptizo, where we get the word baptism, and rantizo, which is the word for sprinkling. One means immerse. One means sprinkle. They are very specific words. And the word baptism in the New Testament is never used in conjunction with sprinkling. And by the same token, the word rantizo in the New Testament is never used for the word immerse. They're very separate, very distinct. Why is that a big deal? Does that really matter? Who cares if it's about faith, right? right? It's all about your faith in Christ. Absolutely. Faith is the deal. However, however, if I'm going to be baptized, I'll tell you what, if I'm going to do anything for the Lord, I want to know how best to do it for the Lord. How to do it for the Lord the most like He wants me to do it. Whether I've had it done to me the right way in the past or not is completely beside the point. If I'm going to give myself over to the Father, I've got to ask, what is the motive here? What is the motive People have talked about getting baptized in the Jordan River, which, by the way, is somewhat of a disappointment. Seeing the area where they have Jordan River baptisms. I mean, it looks like a Disneyland ride. It really does. They've got the little the little metal lines that go right down into the water. I stood there looking at it going, this is not the experience that I, I would have liked you know, for myself or anyone else. This is really commercialized. So if you come to Israel next year When we go And you want to be baptized in the Jordan We'll find a place in the bank And I'll push you in But that's about all I'm going to do Okay But you think about people Okay wait a minute Why do people want to get baptized in the Jordan River If they've already been baptized It's, it's an opportunity It's an opportunity To try and be in that same river I mean there's something emotional about it Something special about that But gang I, just, I want you to hear this And hear my heart on this God asks us to be baptized Period Does baptism save me As some would teach I would say no It's grace that saves us But if I'm going to act On the commands of God And I know how God commanded things That's how I want to act Not because it's more salvation Not because it saves me more But because it's more like What the Father pronounced so anyway, a passive reception. But then the priests went on and they shaved and they washed their clothes. And that's a practical reaction. This is something the priest did. Moses sprinkled them, but then the priests were responsible to use a razor over their whole body, to wash their clothes, and then to be clean. And now we it's something that I do. This whole acceptance of Jesus, the beginning of the Christian walk, the Christian life, is something He does. It's an acceptance of what He has done. But now, there is something I can do in the same way that the Levites had something they could do. 1 John 1.7 again tells us if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that word cleanses is interesting. It's katharizo. It's where we get our word catharsis. Great word. Catharizo. His blood cleanses us. It's a cathartic experience, but that word Catharizo means to keep on cleansing continually. It's not a cleansing that stops. Les and I have talked a lot about this. sozo is the word for salvation, but it's an ongoing process. I'm saved, but I continue to be saved. I continue to walk in that salvation. I continue to move in it. I'm cleansed by the blood of Christ instantaneously. Man, when I accept Christ, I am clean as far as the Father is concerned. But I'm continually cleansed by Jesus. The Bible tells us, 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession. If I will confess... But if I truly need a spiritual shave, may I uh, suggest some extreme measures? I would suggest you use a sword. Use a sword to shave yourself. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. And listen to this. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word has the power to do that. To judge my motives. To take me directly to my motives. To deal with my motivation for doing things. Psalm 119 verses 9 and 11. Especially young people, you'll love this. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, cleansing... Is an immediate thing, but it's also a continual thing. It's something that begins as a passive reception. It's something that continues as a practical reaction in the life of a believer. Going on to verse eight, it says, "Then let them take a bowl with a grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bowl you shall take for a sin offering." Verse nine. So you shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, and present the Levites before the Lord, and the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. He recalled who it is that the Levites replaced in their service. Who did the Levites take the place of? The firstborn, firstborn of all Israel. The firstborn. We read that in Numbers chapter 3, verse 45. It talks about the firstborn of every family of the tribes of Israel. They were set apart. They were redeemed, as it were. And the Levites took their place. And they're identified here now by the laying on of hands. The people lay their hands on the Levites. What's what's that all about? It's identification. It's a transference that happens, by the way, as the people lay their hands on the Levites. The Levites now take the place of the people. They're in that place. Going on, verse 11 says, Aaron shall then present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel, that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. Verse 12 says, The Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and then offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord, to make atonement for the Levites. We studied that in depth in Leviticus. Verse 13 You shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before the sons of Israel so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord Watch this Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel and I like this The Levites shall be mine Now the Levites are mine they belong to me, says the Lord. Then in verse 15, going on, it says, After the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave of offering. For they're wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. You may recall that Exodus chapter 12. And he says in verse 18, But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. And gang, this is at the same time wonderful and it's woeful. There's a joy here and there's a sorrow. For the Levites, a great blessing. Wow, the Levites shall be mine, the Lord says. The Levites take the place. They get to be close to the Lord. They get that, that special standing with the Lord. But the tragedy and the sadness is, Gang. That for Israel, the rest, none of the firstborn would have this position. It was a position lost. To the firstborn of the tribes of Israel. Back in Exodus 12, they were consecrated the firstborn. The whole nation of Israel was going to be a nation of priests. But here we see, and because of the fall at the Golden Calf incident, Now it's given over just to the Levites. Well, verse 19 tells us, I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. And do you realize something? I have this underlined in my Bible. He's given the Levites as a gift. As a gift. As a gift to who? Who are the Levites a gift to? Look at verse 19. Who are they a gift to? Aaron. Aaron and his sons. God says they're mine, but I'm giving them as a gift to Aaron and his sons. What's he talking about? Think about this. Aaron and his sons. At this point, three of them in charge of the spiritual life of all Israel overwhelming. Unbelievable. How could they possibly meet all the spiritual needs? How could they possibly be there for all those people? And yet God says, you're not in this alone. I have given them as a gift to Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons couldn't have handled the weight, the responsibility, the spiritual needs of all the people. But the Levites are a gift to work with, to work with Aaron and his sons. Gang, listen. When you're giving... Or serving Or doing whatever you're doing In your involvement in a church fellowship You need to understand that you're not only a blessing to the Lord And you're not only a blessing to those whom you serve But you're a blessing to those who lead You're a blessing to the pastor You're a blessing to the elders You're a blessing to anyone in leadership Or in a shepherding position in a church And when I think about even right now and It's so cool, it amazes me We have five Bible study small groups That are meeting right now And we've just been kind of talking about small groups a little bit among the elders and and some thoughts about that and and what the needs might be for the body. But we have five different groups that have just happened on their own. They weren't planned out. Nobody sat down and said, okay, this is what we need and this is what we're going to do. They just have started happening. And when I think about the ministry that's happening in those groups Kelly's got a group of girls just starting up right away When I think about the ministry happening The shepherding involved The love and the care and the grace that's being given Larry and the group of men on Tuesday nights And I think about the fact that I'm not even there It has nothing to do with me But God is moving and working And people are being loved and shepherded And it's such a blessing to me You you just need to know that How thrilled I am that that goes on and how it's going on all the time. Even when things aren't prescribed, aren't set forth by the church, this is how we're going to do it. Boom, people are doing, serving, loving, giving, and it's a great blessing. Well, going on, verse 20 tells us that thus did Moses and Aaron all and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So the sons of Israel did to them. Verse 21, the Levites too purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. And Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. See all the Levites doing the way. You know. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. In verse 22, Then after that, the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. Now listen, and this is really cool. Again, placement. Location of where things are happening in Scripture. The Levites are going in to work in the service of the tent of meeting. Aren't we at this point in the book of Numbers? Rick, didn't you tell us that pretty soon they were about to head out and leave Sinai? Shouldn't they be packing it up? But they're not. They're going in and serving before the people leave Sinai. The anticipation is high. The preparation was even more critical. And I just think it's interesting that the service of the Levites in God's perfect timing began before the people left Sinai and not after So what does that mean? Ministry was taking place before they got into a hard place. Before the toughness of the wilderness really hit home. The Levites were already doing their job. Were already functioning in ministry. Were already caring about the people and for the people. Were already about the things of the tabernacle. And the Lord does that. This is how the Lord works in our lives He likes things to be in place Before the hard time hits Before the temptation comes Do you realize so often in our lives We get hit by something hard And the first thing we begin to think is I'm not ready for this Lord And He's saying yes you are You remember what I took you through before That was preparation time You were serving in the tabernacle long before this temptation came, and now that it's here, guess what? You are ready to deal with it. You have been prepared for it. And so Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord likes things to be in place before the hard times hit, so when they do, we can come to the mercy seat. And so the tabernacle, with all the priests, was fully functional before they left Sinai. So that when they left Sinai, the people would be completely ready. Now the rest of chapter eight deals with the um, deals with the priestly retirement. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and if you missed that, you can pick up the tape. But we're going to go on to chapter nine. So there's something else I want you to see tonight. Chapter nine, verse one. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe in its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. Now think about this. What a joyous experience this first Passover must have been. They're now a year, exactly a year out from Egypt. It's Nisan the 14th. On Nisan the 14th, the year before, they were in Egypt. It was the night of the horror. It was the night when the firstborn of all Egypt were being killed by the hand of the Lord. And they were celebrating Passover. Not even knowing what's going to come of this. are Are we really going to get out? Is this true? Can this be? The questions, the fear, the marveling of the people of Israel a year ago, and now a year has gone by. And think about all that has happened to them in that time. They were drawn out of Egypt. They were protected against the armies of Pharaoh. They were fed and protected in the desert of the Sinai. And then at Mount Sinai, they had a bizarre and wild and twisted celebration of their own around that golden calf fell horribly should have at that point been completely wiped out by the Lord but his grace sustains them and here they are a year later to the day and God says now last thing before we leave last thing before we head out into the wilderness celebrate the Passover celebrate it remember what I did think about it and by the way, need I remind anyone that God still delivers. He still delivers. He began delivering on that first day when He drew him out of Egypt. He reminds them a year later, I am still your deliverer. He will continue to do so through the wilderness, literally for the next 40 years. And He does it today. He is still the deliverer. Yeah. Now, you would think at some point... Jews would start to wonder why they should still celebrate the Passover. It was three thousand years ago. I, I hardly remember my birthday as it comes up. You know, For forty-one years is a long time to remember a birthday on an annual basis. They still celebrate Passover. Now, I've thought about this before. It seems a little strange that that celebration continues to go on. It was a celebration of deliverance from Egypt. How many Jews alive today were, were delivered from Egypt? None. How many Jews alive today were impacted by that great deliverance? Oh, I, I understand straight down through their line and through the family line and on down But yeah, there, there's somewhere back in the history, back in the you know, the lineage, someone of the family was saved out of Egypt. But doesn't it seem like a long time ago to be a celebration that continues to this day? Dang Passover. Passover of all the feasts of Israel And in December we went through the feasts of Israel In fact we spent five Sundays On the different feasts And you can pick up those CDs Those are orderable if you want to hear them And go through that But the most powerful of all the feasts of Israel Has to be the Passover It comes down to the Passover For it speaks of three deliverances Not one Three deliverances of the Passover First was the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The blood on the doorposts, the sacrificial lamb, the people drawn out in the early morning hours, being given all manner of gold and riches from the Egyptians as they left Egypt. A wonderful time, deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But it also speaks for Israel of a time future, a time yet to come, and that is the deliverance of Israel from the nations. A deliverance of Israel from the nations. Joel chapter 3 verse 2 tells us the following. God says, I will gather all the nations, and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up the land. Now listen to this, and it's important. People have asked me the question several times Especially during the Revelation study Where is America in the end times? Where is America in the Bible? Because the things that we see talked about Are typically countries in the East In the Middle East We see a lot of talk, Persia, which is Iran today Is talked about a lot Babylon is talked about There in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon And all these areas Libya These are all talked about Specifically with the end times we don't see America in there anyway, anywhere, do we? Is it even mentioned? It's mentioned, but it's not mentioned in a positive light. Listen to this verse again. God says, I will gather all the nations. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will enter into judgment with them. Where is the valley of Jehoshaphat? It's Megiddo. Same valley. Valley of Jehoshaphat the Valley of Yahweh the Valley of Megiddo where Armageddon takes place that final battle that is the judgment being talked about here and God is going to gather all the nations of the world of which the United States is certainly one she's among all the nations well Rick that's a little harsh I'm not sure that it is okay In this world, under the current architecture of the Bush administration's roadmap for peace, something is being done, something is being pushed for, something has already partially happened that is absolutely contrary to the will of God. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not standing up here to try and bash our president. He's got enough on his mind to worry about a stupid little preacher up in the Northwest. It's not a big deal. I'm not trying to get on Bush. But this idea, this concept, this roadmap for peace is in direct violation of God's will because the roadmap for peace calls for Israel to give up land to divide up land and we'll come back and look at this in just a moment but gang America is at the forefront of driving Israel to do something that God said ought not be done in fact something that God said if you do this if you engage in or involve yourself in the division of my land you will be judged for it And so this judgment of the nations, I believe, will involve America at that time. But I said the Passover spoke of three deliverances, the first being Israel from Egypt, the second Israel from the nations at a time yet future. What's the third one? Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Interesting little story that happens here as they're about to celebrate the Passover. It says, there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person. What dead person? Well apparently there was a dead person We don't know what dead person But someone died And some men were unclean So they could not observe the Passover on that day So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day And those men said to him Said to Moses um, Though we are unclean because of the dead person Why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord At this appointed time Among the sons of Israel we, we want to be involved here We don't want to miss the first Passover It's not our fault that this guy died And we had to bury him It's not our fault that we're unclean, but we are unclean, so how can we engage in the celebration? We want to be a part of this. Watch what Moses does. Verse 8. Moses therefore said to them, wait. I like that. Wait, and I will listen to you what the Lord will command concerning you. Wait. Wait. Hang on a second. He says, let me check with the Lord on that one. Let me listen on that one. You know the hardest things it is for me to learn as a pastor? Is when someone calls me up in a crisis and says, Rick, I got this problem. What do you think I should do? The hardest thing for me to do is say, I'll get back to you. Wait, hang on. Can I pray about that for a few days? Wait. Let's ask the Lord. Let's see what He thinks. I've been talking with... Uh, some folks this last week uh, about an issue that I've got to be honest, I have no idea how to counsel. No idea in myself what to tell them to do. It is one of the most difficult issues I've ever faced in ministry as far as where do you draw the line here. And I'm not going to get into it tonight, but all this week I've been asking this question. Oh, what do I tell them? I don't. I don't have an answer. This is. This is so far beyond me. It's beyond my my understanding of how to guide in this situation. And today I'm studying this, and I see Moses say, "Wait, I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you." And God went, "Hey, <laughs> pay a little attention. Wait, hold on. See what happens is we normally react when we need to deact." We need to deactivate the flesh long enough to listen to the Lord. Because when we can do that, when we can stop and just put on hold whatever it is that we think is so important, we've got to have an answer for right now. If we can put that on hold, guess what's waiting for us? Grace. There's grace. Isaiah 30.18 tells us, The Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. And the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. He's longing to be gracious for you. He just wants you to long for Him. To wait on Him. To listen to Him. God, I don't know what to do in this situation. And He says, that's okay. I know. I mean to tell you? Wait. Wait. So Moses calls on the Lord and he receives some good news for these defiled dudes. Verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person, or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. that's great news. He, He can still celebrate the Passover. But there's a little more. He says, In the second month, On the fourteenth day at twilight they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute statute of the Passover they shall observe it. Wait a minute. Passover is in the first month on the fourteenth. But he says, these guys, if they're defiled, or he adds, if someone happens to be out traveling, they can still celebrate the Passover, but in the second month. What's the deal with that? God is still saying, Wait, wait Give it 30 days Give yourself opportunity To be clean If you're defiled Get clean If you're traveling There's still time to come home Before you celebrate the Passover Which brings us game to the third deliverance Indicated by the Passover Not that deliverance from Egypt Not a future deliverance for Israel No, a third deliverance The deliverance of mankind from sin The deliverance of mankind from sin. Now pull back and think. What did Jesus reorganize the Passover into? What did Passover become for a Christian? You know the answer. The Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. When we take communion and we do it at the bridge on a weekly basis, that is a direct uh, outcropping of the Passover. Jesus took it on that last night before he died... He co-opted it and He changed the whole thing, giving it a brand new meaning. Luke chapter 22 verse 14 says, When the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Why, Lord? Why, Jesus, won't you eat of this or, or drink of this wine? Why not right after your resurrection? I think that would be a great time. Show up, freak everybody out, and then share communion. Now share the Lord's Supper. Remember what we did a couple of nights ago? Now it's real. See, my blood, my body, do you understand? But he says, I won't take it again. I won't drink this wine. I won't share this meal again with you until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Why? Because it represents a new deliverance. A new covenant in His blood. The bread being His body. The wine being His blood. That picture that, that we take, that, we, that transfers us all the way up to the point when He returns. He effectively changed Passover Breathing new life and meaning into it in the immediate for all who accept Him as true Messiah. But what's the connection here? Here are these guys they are defiled or someone's traveling and God says, You can still do Passover, but you got to wait. You've got to get it 30 days so that if you're defiled, you can be clean. If you're traveling, you can come home. And sometimes we miss that when we take communion. When we share communion on a Sunday morning, especially if we go through the motions instead of take time to go through the motives. What am I doing here? What's going on here? It's interesting, and I kind of watch this at the bridge on Sundays. It's right before the kids are going to go. And so the little two to six-year-olds tend to be a little more rambunctious right during communion. And some of you have been me why not let them go before communion? And it's partially because I want their rambunctiousness. I love their little voices. It's a reminder to me that God is just gracious to all of us. But what do you do in those times? What do you do when we're taking communion on a Sunday morning? Or any time that you take communion? If we're looking at this passage as an indication, God says, take 30 days, come back and celebrate the Passover. What we might be able to draw out from this is, if I am defiled, or if I've been a long time away from home, I need an examination. I need an examination. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So communion is proclamation. That's something we know and we understand. But he goes on and says Therefore whoever eats the bread Or drinks of the cup of the Lord In an unworthy manner Shall be guilty of the body And the blood of the Lord But a man must examine himself And in so doing He is to eat of the bread And drink the cup Part of communion Which is proclamation Is also examination Now I've got also people ask Well does that mean If I'm not in a right place With the Lord That I just don't take communion That morning I don't think that's what it's saying are you saying we need to come back in 30 days? You know, like the two defiled guys? We have to wait? No, the point is, how are you taking communion? What is the motive? Are you examining where your heart is before the Lord? Maybe you've been a long time away from the Father. Listen, and I love this communion game. Communion is a great time for unentanglement. For Unentanglement. A time to pause on a weekly basis, or even if you do it more often, a time to pause and get unentangled. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, lay aside every encumbrance of the sin which so easily entangles us. We come in, whether it's a Wednesday or a Sunday or other times where we're fellowshiping, we carry this entanglement of sin. And it seems like the further away I get from fellowship with other believers and worship and time in the Word, the more entangled I get. And so God provides this fantastic time of examination where we come in and we think about Jesus. We proclaim him. And we examine ourselves for the process of unentanglement. Well, how do we get unentangled from our sin while we're taking communion? Prior to it, gang, going on in the Hebrew. Book chapter 12 verse 2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus Who is the author and perfecter of the faith Who for the joy set before him Endured the cross Self-examination during communion Is all about unentanglement It's about handing it over to the Lord Honestly confessing to God I have had a bad week this week Lord I don't feel worthy to take this I need you to look into me And search me and know me And see if there's any way in me that's wicked A great prayer to pray During communion Psalm 51.10 God created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me but restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Passover. Communion. That time of deliverance. We are delivered from the sin and death that so easily entangles us in the world and when we take communion it's a great time to pause and consider those things. We're going on. Verse 13 tells us, But the man who is clean and not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, interesting wording, that person shall then be cut off from among his people. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin. Two things happen to the man who refuses or doesn't take the Passover, who doesn't go through with the sacrifice. Two things He's cut off from his people and he bears his sin. And that's exactly, game. what happens when I refuse to commune. When I refuse to commune. When I say, I don't need it. I'll have nothing to do with it. I can live this Christian life on my own. I don't need others. I don't need to be there with the body, with the church. What happens, game? when someone doesn't show up or refuses to keep this memorial? What happens is exactly what happens to this guy. Isolation in other words I'm cut off from the people I'm I'm out on my own I'm alone and that is not what God intends for us that's the beauty of the fellowship of the church is that we're not alone and he says and it's it's interesting he says that man will bear his sin you know I don't think God ever wanted anyone to bear their sin by themselves I don't think God ever intended that someone should wallow in loneliness and guilt, feeling like they're the only person in the world dealing with and going through with what they're dealing with and going through. But when I come to the table, not only do I come with self-examination, but I come in communion. I come with my fellow brothers and sisters. Something just struck me today. We've never done this before at the bridge. How would it be on a Sunday morning if during communion we're passing things out and we stop and said, By the way, Let's take about a half an hour right now and let's go around and find someone you're comfortable with, someone you love, and let's confess our sin for this week. What? I don't want to do that. Come on, man. Let me take my communion and get on with the message so I can get out of here. What if we pause for confession during communion as part of the act of communion? The Bible says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another. Confess, bear, share, unload, get unentangled. God does not want us to bear the weight of our sin alone. And the reality is, and if we believe that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, guess what? Not a single one of us are here, in here, are clean in and of ourselves. Every one of us have things to confess, every one of us have struggles, every one of us have failed this last week. And yet if we can share those things with the body, as we commune with the Lord, if we can bear our souls, guess what we're doing? We're walking it out in the light. We're living before the landstand. We're being real. And God doesn't want us to live this life alone. Verse 14 tells us that if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of Passover and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land, which I think is interesting. Don't change things just because you have a visitor. Don't do it differently just because there might be a seeker there. That's the buzz in the church. And you know this, the seeker-driven church. Let's change the way we do church. Let's make it look different. Instead of a church building, make it look like an office by the way, I'm not trying to say we should have church buildings. Obviously we work in a you know worship in a barn here. So we don't look like a church here. But let's strip ourselves of anything that looks churchy. Let's make the worship music a little more pop. You know? And let's, when we have the sermon, can you just go 20 minutes? Wouldn't that be nice? It, we just went 20 minutes and had like three really nice kind of secret points, how to have a happy marriage in three easy steps. <laughs> But here's the deal If you want to be Seeker sensitive Shouldn't we be Sensitive To the true seeker Who is Jesus Christ He's the seeker He's the one who is Searching hearts and minds And seeking those Who would follow him And I just think It's real interesting This one verse If an alien comes in And he's among you You don't change the Passover For him you don't make a difference thing, oh, he's not going to understand the, the bitter herbs. He's not going to get the, the lamb bone here. He's not going to understand the, the aspects of Passover. We'll change it. We'll have jello instead. No, you keep it the same. It's the same whether you have a visitor walking in the door or someone who's been there a hundred years. You worship me the way I've called you to worship. And you study my word the way I've called you to study my word. And don't you worry about the rest. I am the seeker. I'll get the people here. And so he does. Let's finish this out. Last thing and we're done for tonight. Verse 15 tells us, On that day, the tabernacle was erected. The cloud covered the tabernacle. The tent of the testimony. And in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. Now again, they're about to leave, but God says, Before you leave, set it up. Before you go anywhere Get the service going Experience half Passover with the tabernacle Right here let's walk through this together And I'm going to show you where I will reside Right there in the tabernacle He lights it up The appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning And verse 16 says So it was continuously The cloud would cover it by day And the appearance of fire by night And whenever the cloud was lifted From over the tent afterward the sons of Israel would then set out And in the place where the clouds settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. See, their weather report every morning was, where's the cloud? Cloud's here? Okay, we're good for another day. Cloud's moving. Pack it up. It's time to roll. Verse 19, even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. And then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. Are you getting the picture here? He wants to be clear, doesn't want us to miss it. Verse 21, if sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and lifted at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. In other words, if the cloud moved, they moved. If the cloud stopped, they stopped. Even if it was just for a lunch break, if the cloud stopped, everyone stopped. If it rolled on, they rolled on. Whether it was two days, verse 22, or a month or a year, that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. That is so cool. Now think about this You might wonder Did they even have a choice (laughs) They're out in the middle of the wilderness They don't even know where they are So they had to go where the cloud went They had to move when the fire moved They they had no other choice They couldn't roll out the map And go okay I know the cloud's over there But the promised land Is just about 30 miles that way Come on guys let's go They had no other option But to follow the Lord And I love this gang Remember this cloud It's still there But what exactly is this cloud? Deuteronomy 1.33 says, The Lord your God goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. The Lord goes before you. Isaiah 63:14 says, "As the cattle which go down in the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. The cloud here, gang, was the very spirit of the Lord. This cloud was the presence of the Holy Spirit, which brings us right back around to where we began. How do you know where to go in your life? How did the Israelites know where to journey as they moved about in the Sinai wilderness? As they went from place to place, from here to there. How did they know which way to go? The Spirit led them. The cloud, which is the Holy Spirit, moved before them the lampstand. The very light of the Spirit of Christ. It was God's Spirit who led the people. He told them when to pack it up, and He told them when to settle down. And all they had to do, one thing, all they had to do was watch that cloud. Keep their eyes on the Spirit and that was all that was required wouldn't that be easier for us wouldn't it make things easier on us if we had the cloud to look at I think if I got up in the morning and looked out my window and the cloud was still over my property okay good another day here if the cloud started moving started moving, you know, down the end of the driveway, hop in the car and follow, because this is what God wants me to do today. It goes and it hovers over a hospital. Okay, there's someone I'm supposed to visit here. So off I go to the hospital. It goes over and starts to hover over Starbucks. Alright, so I need some coffee. This is good. And I'm just gonna follow the cloud everywhere I go. The cloud's not going to work this morning. Hallelujah. It's a day off. And we thought, you know, and we think, man, it would be so much easier if we could just see the Lord. I had this said just this last week if I could audibly hear God's word in this situation I would be so much better off but guess what history says no that's not true part of the example of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness is they had the cloud. They had the auditory voice of God speaking to Moses, telling them exactly what they needed to do, exactly where they needed to go. But here's the deal, and we'll see this in the rest of our studies in Numbers, even with the visible and tangible and auditory presence of God, the people are going to complain. They're going to murmur They're going to be lost They'll get confused They're going to act childish They're going to look up at the cloud and go Does he really know where he's leading us? Does Moses have any idea where we are? How are we going to make it in this wilderness? I'm thirsty Could I have a drink of water please? Teacher I'm hungry I'm sick of this bread Can we have some meat instead? Does he have any idea where he's leading us Or what he's doing? They had the visible representation of God, and it did them no good. They could see with their eyes, and it was useless. And we sit here today, and we say, I can't see the Lord. I can't see Him. And, and I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and there are times He's just silent. I can't hear Him. Man, it'd be easier if He just say, Rick, go. Rick, stay. Rick, Wait times in our lives when we're trying so desperately to hear from the Lord and it's quiet and we think man it could have been better if I could just see him if I could just experience him more tangibly gang there is a way for Israel to know and experience the light of God's presence in a way they never had before but it's not under the Mosaic Covenant it's not with the cloud and the fire it is under the new covenant a new covenant I'm going to read this to you real quickly book of Jeremiah verse 31 reads the following Jeremiah 31 in verse 31 behold days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt I took them by the hand, tangibly. This is not like that covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. The old one didn't work so well. I knew it wouldn't. They needed to know it wouldn't. He goes on and says, I took them by the hand. I led them out of the land of Egypt. This was my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But, verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin, I will remember no more. And what's wonderful, you read this, here's the new covenant. And God's saying it's completely different. The old one which I set up that you broke so badly. The easy one where I was leading you by the hand visibly, tangibly and it didn't work. You know why it didn't work? Because, gang, it was tangible. Because it was physical. Because it did have tangible physical requirements of you. Do these things and I will do this. And they couldn't do it. And so the Lord comes along and He says, I've got a new covenant for you. By the way... Did you hear who this new covenant was for? It says it very clearly to us. In fact, it's so clearly, it's completely spelled out. I will make a new covenant, listen, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's who the new covenant is for. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's for the Jews. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. We use the phrase new covenant all the time in Christianity. So it's not for us? You mean it's just for them? This is great news. For although the new covenant is for Israel, it is also for you. The Holy Spirit renews the covenant for another audience. Shares with a new audience, but not in lieu of Israel, in addition to Israel. This covenant will be fulfilled completely for the Jews. But it's also fulfilled in You and in me Hebrews chapter 10 verse 15 The Holy Spirit testifies to us Saying and then he quotes Jeremiah 31 This is the covenant that I will make with them After those days says the Lord I will put my laws upon their heart And on their mind I will write them So cool Quoting Jeremiah The Holy Spirit here declares this testimony This new covenant Not only to be for Israel and Judah Which it is But to be for you and for me Do you realize how awesome this is? This new covenant is not a covenant that I follow by rote. It is not a covenant that I follow by doing and step by step tangibly acting out. It is a covenant game that is written on my heart and written in my mind. And it teaches me how to walk in the light of the presence of God, not with the cloud, not with the fire. Not with Him leading me by the hand, but instead Him leading me by the heart. The cloud determined their direction. When it lingered, they lingered. When it moved, they moved. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. John chapter 3 verse 6. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means I have no idea where He's taking me tomorrow. I don't know. I have no clue where I'm going. But He knows. And so, if I'm born of the Spirit, I'm blown with the wind. His wind. I am led by Him. I'm going where He wants me to go, when He wants me to go. And where He stays, there I will stay. Now you may say, well, that sounds great. Sounds nice Sounds Mystically ethereal All I gotta do is just hang out in the spirit What does that mean? How do I work this out practically in my life? One verse and we're done Psalm 37 verse 4 God makes it so wonderfully clear Listen to this, it's simple Delight yourself in the Lord And he will give you the desires of your heart Commit your way to the Lord Trust also in Him And He will do it He will bring forth your righteousness As the light And your judgment As the noonday God, I don't know What to do with this given situation That's okay Just delight yourself in me Father, I'm not sure how to behave In this certain circumstance That's all right. Just delight yourself in me Stop worrying about the how-to's And start just enjoying Me. See, the Father says, if we'll just delight ourselves in Him, just love Him, just be with Him, that He will give us the desires of our heart. Why would He do that? Because if we're hanging out with God, the desires of our heart are His desires. How do I know what to do in my life? If I am entrusting my life to the Lord, I'm going to have right judgments. If I'm entrusting myself to Him, I'll have right desires, clear direction, sound judgment. And it is really this simple. You don't have to keep 613 laws. God just says, Delight. Delight yourself in me and I will lead you. And if you're in the wilderness, don't worry about it. And if you're in the promised land, hallelujah. Just delight.